You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about eating disorders and diet culture. Joining me is Dr. Nicole Sifra, who's an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent Medicine, also with me at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Sifra. Thank you for having me. Well, this is such a great topic, and we've certainly covered eating disorders in different forms on this podcast before, and I encourage listeners to go back and listen to some of those episodes, but we haven't specifically talked about diet culture, and this seems pervasive in our society. There's so many different ways that our adolescent patients define their diets. I keep learning about new things all the time. So how do we know when someone is following a particular diet that might restrict their intake in certain ways versus when they have an eating disorder and that's what's causing their restriction. Yeah, so I think it can be really tricky, especially when dieting and restriction of food intake in a number of different ways is so normative in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so the way I conceptualize it is kind of as a spectrum. So on one end, is, you know, what we would call like pretty normal eating patterns. So eating when you're hungry, not eating when you're not hungry, having a wide variety of foods, no foods are good or bad, no concerns for body weight, shape, and size. And that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then the other end is a clinical eating disorder that meets diagnostic criteria for one of the eating disorders. And I think in the middle, there's a huge gray area where Some people can engage in disordered eating and worrisome dieting behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a fine line that for when that is an eating disorder versus kind of dieting behavior that's still very worrisome to me, but doesn't quite meet criteria. Right. And so the way I think about it is like for substance use disorder, there is a term repeated use despite harm. So for me... If someone is engaging in really worrisome dieting behaviors that are impacting their life, limiting their social abilities, and they're having negative social, physical, mental health consequences, and they still aren't able to stop that behavior or improve their intake, then that to me is usually an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that spectrum, and even if people aren't yet meeting a DSM diagnosis, right? They could be headed in that direction. So I think when we see these really restrictive eating patterns, it is important for us to kind of take note of that and see where this is going. It could be a fad that they say, okay, that diet's not for me and go back to normative eating patterns, or they could be heading down that road towards an eating disorder. Yes, absolutely. And I think that all of it is concerning to me mm-hmm. as someone who who specializes in eating disorders, especially since the stakes are so high. Eating disorders really derail people's life. So right. I think intervening at any point, even if someone doesn't technically meet criteria, is a great call. Mm-hmm. 
Now, a term that some listeners may have heard before is orthorexia, and while it isn't yet in the DSM-5, it's often used to describe patients who have an obsession with healthful, and I'm going to put that in quotes, healthful eating that becomes harmful, often leading to malnutrition. And there's some overlap here with diagnoses like anorexia and obsessive compulsive disorder. So what are some of the red flags for orthorexia? And do you approach the management of these patients similarly to anorexia? Yeah, so that's a great question. And orthorexia, like you said, it is not a DSM-5 diagnosis for an eating disorder. It's kind of like a term that's used in press and in popular culture. Mm-hmm. So it describes that, like, quote, healthful eating. And oftentimes, many patients that have symptoms that would be consistent with orthorexia really do meet criteria when you get down to it for anorexia nervosa. And Dr. Alex Timko, who's also here at CHOP, did a great podcast about this. And I think that a lot of this kind of confusion comes a little bit from people think of people with anorexia nervosa or people with eating disorders as saying, you know, I really want to be thinner. I think I'm fat. I don't want to be overweight. And thus, I'm going to restrict my food intake to become the thinnest I can be. When in reality, there are a lot of different things that can lead someone down the path to an eating disorder. And sometimes that is just a really big concern about food quality and and health of things that are consumed. And I'll I'll put that all in quotes as well. Right. You know, to me, the danger of using the term orthorexia is that I think to some people, it can imply that it's less concerning than anorexia nervosa when in reality, it's all concerning, even if someone isn't saying the classic, you know, I want to be thinner, I'm afraid of becoming fat, that type of thing. So it seems like over the years, the category of eating disorders has expanded a little bit, and maybe things like orthorexia will be included in the future. But one of the newer things that I've heard about is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID for short. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people understand what anorexia is and bulimia is, but since this is a newer category, can you explain what the criteria are for this diagnosis? Yes, absolutely. So The ARFID diagnosis is, like you said, new in the DSM-5. And to put simply, to kind of condense it down, it's failure to meet energy needs and low weight status without the presence of any body image concerns that are clear or overt. Mm -hmm. I will say that oftentimes it isn't clear when someone presents for care if someone meets criteria for ARFID or anorexia nervosa. So sometimes there could be a little bit of overlap. People can switch between diagnoses. But really, the restriction of food intake without the concerns about body weight, shape, or size are to kind of condense it into the most simple terms. And I kind of conceptualize ARFID in like a kind of people have a few different presentations. And obviously, you know, they can overlap But I kind of conceptualized patients with ARFID in kind of three different categories. So one being fear of adverse consequences. So someone is, you know, really afraid of, for example, choking or have an anaphylactic reaction, and that causes them to really restrict their intake to which it interferes with meeting their energy needs. Mm -hmm. Second being overly kind of, quote, picky, having concerns about texture, food temperature, the color of food, 
And then the third category being kind of this pervasive lack of interest about eating, like eating as a chore, it's just not a priority, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And those are kind of like the different ways people with ARFID can present. And again, obviously there can be a lot of overlap where people can have concerns that fit into all three of those categories. But those are kind of the patterns that I see for patients who are coming with ARFID. Yeah, that's a really great definition for us to keep in mind. And you mentioned overlap with anorexia, but it seems like there could also be some overlap or even confusion between ARFID and things like oral aversion, severe GERD, IBS, or even autism. And while there may be a medical diagnosis, like you mentioned, that leads to ARFID, not everyone with these diagnoses does develop ARFID. So how do we approach treatment when there may be more than one diagnosis contributing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of times this is where the interdisciplinary team is really helpful in kind of approaching patient care from a number of different perspectives. And to meet diagnostic criteria for ARFID, the nutritional deficiency or restriction in eating patterns has to be beyond what would be expected of the other disease. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone has irritable bowel syndrome or a GI disorder of some kind, their weight loss or failure of weight gain or restriction has to be kind of beyond what's typical for that disease process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, oftentimes, for example, people who meet diagnostic criteria to be on autism spectrum, a classic example is, you know, a really extreme restriction of intake that leads to nutrient or vitamin deficiencies, like someone, you know, having scurvy or something like that, that's clearly beyond. And, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be that dramatic, but that's kind of what we're looking for in making that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. And I should also say that I am not a psychologist, so please take whatever I'm saying with a grain of salt. And I, I say this all with humility and having learned a lot from my psychologist colleagues. Mm-hmm, definitely. We have so many great psychologists at CHOP who help with, especially in this area where there's overlap, we have a lot of psychologists who are embedded in different divisions like GI. Absolutely. And they're really the experts there, yeah. So another group of patients where it can be challenging to identify if there's an eating disorder or disordered eating are athletes, particularly those athletes where a low BMI is common and sometimes even encouraged. I'm thinking about sports and athletes like gymnasts, figure skaters, wrestlers, long-distance runners, and rowers, but there could be others. And these sports, which sometimes tie athletic success to a thin body or have frequent weigh-ins, can be a risk factor for a diagnosis called relative energy deficiency in sport, or REDS. And I remember when a low BMI and amenorrhea were normalized as just part of those sports, but this is now considered a type of an eating disorder, I believe. So tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's not considered like in the DSM-5 for eating disorders, but it's a separate diagnosis. And so I think Mm -hmm. that, and this has kind of evolved over time. So REDS used used to be the female athlete triad. And now we really know that this can impact people of all genders. And so it's not limited to females. Mm -hmm. And the technical definition from the International Olympic Committee is impaired physiologic function, including but not limited to menstrual dysfunction, bone health, immunity, protein synthesis, and cardiovascular health caused by relative energy deficiency. So Mm. kind of to summarize, it can be menstrual dysfunction or amenorrhea due to estrogen deficiency with 
impact on bone health as well or low bone mineral density per age. It can cause the cardiovascular health consequences of bradycardia and hypotension mm -hmm. and impacting performance due to that relative energy deficiency. Great. Thank you so much for clarifying a little bit about that. And again, I think it's so important that we recognize that this is a DSM diagnosis and it's not considered normal to not have your period because of your sport. Yes, it is absolutely not normal to not have your period because of your sport. And I think that it's really scary to me for how much it's normalized, even in the medical community. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, definitely get the word out that that is a cause for concern. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking about lots of different ways that disordered eating and eating disorders can present and be classified. Why is this such an important topic for primary care providers to be aware of and recognize early? Yeah, so as primary care clinicians, you guys are the front line. And, you know, patients generally, when they are struggling with eating disorders, they, they don't come to me first. They come to you first. Right. And you know the patients the best as having, you know, oftentimes known them for a pretty significant part of their lives. And so I think that primary care doctors have such a huge role in identifying these diseases and referring to treatment really promptly, which we know from the literature, early identification and early weight restoration has a huge positive impact on prognosis. And mm -hmm. so the role in identifying those changes and in, in patterns and growth patterns, as well as you know having that conversation with families and making the referral and, you know, starting on the nutritional rehabilitation journey is such a huge one that I can't emphasize enough. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before just how serious eating disorders are, right? There's a high risk of morbidity and mortality with these diagnoses, which makes it even more important that we really take these seriously. It's not just someone who's not eating enough. It's really impacting all different organ systems in their body. And so we need to, you know, really prioritize and take seriously the risks that could be there for these patients. Absolutely. Now, you've been very humble about your expertise today, but you really are an expert in adolescent medicine. So when you have patients in clinic, or let's say you have a patient in clinic who gives you a diet history that makes you concerned about one of the disorders that we talked about today, but the patient doesn't seem to have any insight that there's something wrong and, in fact, may report their diet proudly as one that's healthy. So how do you kind of shift that conversation into one where you're explaining your concern about an eating disorder? Yeah, so it's a tricky situation. And oftentimes, again, I, and I see this as a societal issue. Mm -hmm. A lot of times patients and families are, you know, kind of report this weight loss really proudly. And, and that's not an issue with them. I see it as an issue as a culture that we kind of emphasize this so much. Mm -hmm. And I think I have learned in my career just to be pretty direct about my concerns and being honest with families about, you know, what I see and as the impact of weight suppression long-term. And so sharing with parents that I want their child to be able to have really, you know, fruitful, healthy experience in school and college and, you know, being concerned that this dieting or eating disorder will derail that or, you know, take away from those experiences. And I think the 
kind of reporting dietary intake and restriction in a way where people are, you know, proud of that is really, that can be a part of the disease process because eating disorders are egocentric diseases. And so people are going to kind of like really not feel that this pattern is harmful to them when it really is. And so their cognitions from their eating disorder, they perceive them as congruent with their own thoughts and, and behaviors. And that's, you know, very common and expected. And that's something that I share with families as well, because I think it's hard for them to feel like they're having um, expectations for their child that is causing them distress. But it's really the only way to get through it and to get them better. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that societal change is really needed. And I'd say there's cultural change even within medicine, which is why we've been doing podcasts on this topic, because the way that we were trained, many of us at least, years ago is very different than some of the approaches that are used now. And we have a prior podcast with Carrie Hecker and Dr. Ellie Benner on exactly this topic about preventing weight-based harm, specifically in how healthcare providers communicate, which I encourage listeners to go back and listen to. But I would love to hear your approach as an adolescent medicine physician about how we can prevent eating disorders potentially in the way that providers communicate about diets, because we talk about diet routinely at every well visit. So what kind of language should we be using that we're not reinforcing some of the stigma and stereotypes that exist out there? Yeah. And I loved that podcast. I remember that podcast when it came out and I would totally encourage all of your listeners to go back and take a listen to it because it's excellent. And I will co-sign everything that Carrie and Dr. Benner say. I believe that they mentioned throughout the podcast a weight-neutral approach, so focusing on the behaviors rather than the weight itself. Um, Because really we know that moving your body in a meaningful way and engaging in physical activity, being outside, eating a wide variety of foods, those are things that are really have positive health effects independent of weight loss or weight gain or weight status. Right. And so those are the things that I would focus on as measures of health and kind of promoting a healthy eating pattern and a healthy lifestyle that really has been shown to have benefit. And I think part of that too is, you know, I always, you can't see me, but I always put health in air quotes when I say that because Healthy eating involves a wide variety of foods, including some foods that, you know, people would think are unhealthy, but Mm -hmm. there are no good and bad foods, everything in balance. And I think that having that approach can really help minimize the kind of slope to restriction that some people will start on when Mm -hmm. presented with the charge to lose weight. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. So we talked a lot about modeling and we, as parents, and we talk about this pretty much with every topic that comes up in pediatrics, but it's so important too that we remind parents to think about the way they talk about food and their relationship with food and their own bodies is particularly in front of their children because we know children are listening. And so if parents can model some of the things that you were talking about too, that can really help even from very young ages, kids are observing the way that we interact with food and, and think about our own bodies. So I would add that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I never want parents to listen to this. And when I when I talk about these things, I always want to be clear, like, I don't want parents to think 
oh my gosh, like I said X, Y, Z in front of my kid. I'm like such a terrible parent. Like I've caused them harm. And like really, again, this is not an individual issue. Like we are being drowned in this in our culture and we can do our best to kind of minimize the exposure that our kids have to that. But like give yourself grace because you're swimming upstream Mm -hmm. in this culture of weight loss and dieting. So true. Well, thank you so much for explaining more about diet culture and defining some different types of eating disorders for listeners. I think this was really helpful to give us perspective and learn a little bit about the spectrum here. So thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with us today. And again, for taking care of our patients in the Division of Adolescent Medicine. We are so grateful to you and all of your colleagues and team there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And if listeners like this episode, please remember to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.